So I was like, I'm just going to make a Duplass style movie that has Indian people. And I knew I didn't want the conflict to be about being Indian or having an identity crisis. Because mm-hmm. honestly, Tesh and I talked about it and, and he also grew up in a very healthy, vibrant Indian community. Yo, 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 welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Sujata Day. Sujata is a Pittsburgh native and a performer, writer, and director for TV and film. Yes, all three. You may know her from the Upright Citizen Brigade's Asian AF, from her involvement in Sundance as a lab fellow and as a film festival influencer, or for her roles in film and TV. These include Cece in The Misadventures of an Awkward Black Girl or Sarah in HBO's Insecure. But before all this, Sujatha got an engineering degree and a job in consulting. We talk about why she decided to do that when she knew that she'd be an actress from the start. She shared a couple of hilarious stories about her transition from consultant to actress, and we talked about working for free. In 2017, Sujatha wrote, directed, and acted in her short film, Cowboy and Indian. More recently, she released Definition Please, again, as a writer, director, and actress. It's a film based on a washed up spelling bee champion, a story which may hit painfully close to those of us with a dusty third grade trophy somewhere in the house. She talked us through the wise words that got her moving on the stream project and through convincing actors that have been on Scrubs, The Jungle Book, and other major productions to take a chance on her independent film. Lace up, Sujatha Day. Welcome to Brown People We Know. Sujatha, I see you came prepared because I see a Ganesh statue behind you. <laughs> Was that for this podcast? No, I've I actually throughout the pandemic, like I've had it for a long time. My parents have given it to me and it was kind of hidden behind my external microphone and I would always see it. And then I was like, oh, let me take that out. So maybe like one or two months ago, I was like, I'm going to have like right above me, which you can't see is the is my cowboy and Indian film poster, which is my mm-hmm. short film. And I was like, oh, I'll just put Ganesh underneath. And now every time I video chat with my parents, they're like, oh, that's a good place to put your Ganesh, you know, to have money coming in. (laughs) I've got a little Ganesh statue as well that I've just kept on my bookshelf since college. I don't know. There's something aesthetic or comforting about it. Yeah, I just wanted to put it somewhere where I could see it. I think before it was kind of hidden and now now I can see it every day and it makes me feel good. So that actually kind of leads into my first couple of questions. Basically, you were you were born and raised in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, which I believe was and probably still is a pretty white town. But I've heard that you had a pretty vibrant Indian community growing up. So can you kind of speak about that? Like, did you have a lot of Indian friends and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so you're definitely right. You know, my schools, I went through the Catholic school system and the public school system, and it was mostly mostly white kids. But it, w- it was really, you know, I never had any problems or anything. Everyone was great. And my best friend was Hispanic. And so we kind of ruled the school. My, my other best friend, her dad was our high school principal. So we just got away with everything, which was awesome. But then on the weekends in the area, there are three temples. So there's a Hindu temple, an SV temple and a Buddhist temple. 
So on the weekends, I was going to, you know, birthday parties, anniversaries, graduations. They were all Indian parties. And and then we also had a specific Bengali group of people that we hung out with in the area, in the region as well. So I had Indian friends and it was really great. Even even in Greensburg, every grade had one Indian kid and <laughs> and we were all friends and we all knew each other. And of course, everyone would ask, oh my gosh, is Monica your sister or is Vikas your brother? And we would kind of go with it because we felt like family. I went to Parthnatyam dance classes at SV Temple every Sunday. And then we would go to pujas and events at the Hindu Jain Temple. And then I went to Hindu summer camp in Lake Erie, Pennsylvania. And that was really fun. And I I feel like I'm very lucky and grateful that I never had to choose between cultures because I had, you know, my friends at school who were great and fun and cool. And I would go to school dances and sleepovers and all that stuff. But then I also had my Indian friends where we would watch Bollywood movies with and we do Bollywood dancing and we really stayed true to our culture and I'm fluent in Bengali. So my parents, you know, spoke Bengali with me since I was born. And yeah, I'm, I feel really lucky that I, I never felt torn between a bunch of cultures. I just kind of picked the best stuff out of all of our upbringings and made yeah. it a part of who I am. So it was pretty interesting to, for me to read about the dance classes and the amount of time that you had kind of spent at the temples because... When I look at a lot of my American friends that are very religious, a lot of that doesn't necessarily come from the religion itself, but the sense of community that they had felt in church. And so I'm curious if you are religious and if you feel like that sense of community that you had had in those temples and, you know, going there for dance classes and that type of stuff tied into that. I feel like I'm an, I'm religious in a way that that Hindus are allowed to be religious in their own way, which I think is really cool. We don't commit a sin if we don't go to temple on Sunday, you know? So something that my dad said when I was growing up, because sometimes I'd be like, oh, I don't want to go to Parthnatyam today. And I would say these things and he would be like, oh, that's your way of worship. And I was like, oh, dancing. Okay, that's cool. I can I can get into that. But he'd bribe me with a Dairy Queen ice cream cone <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> And, you know, Hindu camp was also really fun. I call that like a basic white girl's wet dream because we did meditation. We learned bhajans. We were doing yoga twice a day. We're eating vegan food. We're learning Bollywood dances to to perform on the last day of camp. And Hinduism as a religion to me has always been really fun. <laughs> so, so I yeah, I do consider myself Hindu and I'm pretty proud of it as well. It's interesting to hear that you've kind of had this performance background from an early age through Bharatanatyam, but one of the things that I find super interesting about your journey, something people might not know about you is that when you went to college you got an engineering degree. But at the same time, you were singing and dancing and performing throughout college. And I know when you graduated, you went to work for Accenture, but it was in L.A. So it seems almost like you were doing this engineering thing, but you had your sights set on acting. 
Is that true? And if so, why, why pursue the engineering degree? Listen, it was all part of the major plan. In, <laughs> in my high school newspaper, I had, you know, they get quotes from people. And I was 17 and I was like, I'm going to win an Oscar. I'm going to Los Angeles. And of course, I was going to Case Western for, for engineering school. But I also didn't want to be a, a burden on my parents. I didn't, I wanted to make sure that I, I would be able to pay for stuff. I wouldn't be struggling in Los Angeles. So I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, engineering takes just four years, not like med school. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm going to get a, a degree that's like super financially viable in the employable marketplace. And, and I'm good at it. I'm good at math. I'm good at science. It's not hard for me. So I was just like, that's what I'm going to do. got a scholarship to go to Case. And, and I was like, also in my free time, I'll do what I did in middle school and high school, which is do plays, do musicals. I did study abroad in Sydney, Australia for two semesters for a whole year. And yeah. that's where I really cemented my performing goals. And that's where I'm not sure if you know, but if you study... At, back then, if you studied abroad, your grades transferred over as pass or fail. So I took my hardest engineering classes over there, got straight 50% in those, <laughs> passed them, <laughs> and then and then really focused on performing classes and dancing classes and acting classes. And then I came back to Case, had finished most of my engineering major, like the classes that I was supposed to take. So I was like, oh, great. I'll take a semester of screenwriting. I'll take a semester of playwriting. And then I really, I was just super focused. And I was like, okay. And then the summer before my senior year, I interned with the Accenture in Cleveland. And at the end of that summer, they offered me the job. And they were like, where do you want to go? And I was like, Los Angeles. And they're like, great. That's where you're going. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> The plan actually worked <laughs> somehow. It, it all worked. And then yeah. a week after graduating, I flew out to L.A. Didn't know anyone except for my parents' friends. And so I lived with them for a month or two before I found my own spot and was still going to Accenture. But something that's really interesting about consulting, I feel like a lot of your listeners probably know about consulting, but... You don't have to go to work unless you're placed on a project. So another thing that I did was try really hard to not get placed on a project. <laughs> <laughs> We're racking up your billable hours. Yes, yes. And I was on a salary. I was, I think I was getting paid the highest salary out of my graduating class. <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, I really, I've planned this really well. Because <laughs> I, I would not go to work at Accenture if I wasn't on a project. So I would go to get headshots, go to acting classes, go to auditions, and just really started kind of figuring out LA. And um, by the time I got laid off, which was a year later, it was really perfect timing because I got severance and unemployment. And then about six to eight months later, I booked three national commercials. And that's when I kind of broke it. To, I think my parents knew like what was going on, but couldn't like admit it to themselves. But that's when I said, hey, this is what I'm doing. Here's what I'm getting paid for the commercials. And then they were like, oh, okay. Well, I guess you got laid off. I mean, what else are you going to do? So. So 
these days, there are a lot of South Asians and people in general that are balancing the day job with kind of their creative career. But back then, I don't think that was as, as common. So where did you get the insight to kind of do that? Or did you have a role model or someone you're looking at? Or was it literally fly by night? I wasn't looking at anyone. I, I think when I was at Case, I did like a one of those really scammy like modeling and talent conventions in Hilton Head. And you pay a thousand bucks to go to Hilton Head and you do like a monologue in front of what they say are agents and managers from LA and New York and people who are scouting. I ended up winning the monologue contest and I was like, okay, that's cool. What do I get? And then a random agent actually came up to me and was like, hey, if you're ever in LA, look me up. And so when I came out to LA, I called her and she was my first agent. I had zero role models. I was just like kind of Googling, seeing like what, and that scam thing came up, you know? (laughs) So I was like, all right, I guess I'll do it. You know, I've been working, I can pay for it on my own. So I just did it. And I guess in my case, it ended up not being a scam because that agent repped me and also got me, got me those three national commercials. So. And I know another one of your early quote unquote big breaks was when you were cast onto misadventures of an awkward black girl, which was a web series with Issa Rae. A lot of those early gigs from what I heard weren't paid. And so I was curious about as you're making this transition from what's traditionally a stable career to a less stable career, did you have any sort of constraints or any sort of contingency plan, you know, like I need to make it in two years and then I'm going to switch back or anything like that in place? The thing is, in the arts, you can't have contingency plans or else it's never going to happen. Like your dreams are never going to come true because I I truly believe in kind of those universal la 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 aspects of like you have to get rid of things in your life to make room for the new thing. So once I left Accenture or got laid off, booked those commercials, I started booking, you know, not big jobs, but jobs that were paying money. And and so I would always save my money and make sure that I had something to fall back on in terms of that. I did waitress and I did hostess at restaurants and I loved every second of it because I was like, oh, this is what they do in the movies and on TV. Like they're struggling, they're waitressing, they're hostessing. And and I really enjoyed it. And I loved being around other creative people. And all of my other actor friends were like, you're crazy that you love that waitressing job. And I was like, yeah, but I've never done it before. Like, <laughs> it's so fun. And you meet all these people. And and so it was it was really fun for me. So if I was, you know, in between acting gigs, that's what I would do. And that's what kind of everyone in this industry, like everyone in my acting classes was like working at a restaurant or that's how you made your friends out here. And, and it was just part of, I guess, the culture, you know, they'd be like, you have an engineering degree. What are you doing? Like working at a diner. And I was like, no, this is cool. (laughs) I've never done this before. So, so I really, I really loved that part of it as well. I'm also just curious how you felt about doing unpaid gigs at that time, because there's a push right now for people 
to like get paid fairly and all of this. But at the same time, I look at a lot of really successful people and they all say like, I did this thing unpaid. I did this thing unpaid to get that experience. So do you have any thoughts on that? So definitely for actors, there are, there's a time when you're in the business where you're non-union. So you are generally going to be doing unpaid gigs, right? So you are trying to build up what is called your reel, your video reel of your acting experience. And I was auditioning at USC for short films, at UCLA, at Loyola Marymount, and and kind of all the schools around here because there were always AFI students doing their thesis films. And it usually turns out really great. You know, half the time they like don't finish their films and then you don't get the reel. But but you just have to kind of, you know, meet people on set and and just be excited that you're there. And it, and it is really fun. And generally, most of those projects are passion projects. So so they they mean something and they they have depth. And that's you. You're kind of know about that going into acting like you're not going to especially if you're not in SAG yet, SAG-AFTRA, which is the union, then you're going to be doing a whole bunch of these before you start even auditioning for like the one-liners on TV shows or films. And with with Issa and Awkward Black Girl, it was 10 years ago that I left Facebook before everyone started leaving Facebook. But there was just like, friend drama and family drama on there. And I was like, I'm not, I can't be a part of this toxicity. So I just like deleted it. And then I was like, oh, shoot, I do need a social media. (laughs) So then I was like, oh, what's this Twitter? Nobody was on Twitter at that time. I was like, all right, I'll make a Twitter. And Issa was on Twitter and we both had like five followers. And then we started following each other. And a couple days after we started following each other, she said, I'm looking for a mixed looking girl to play my best friend on a web series. And I DM'd her and I was like, hey, I'm not mixed, but this is my picture. Let me know. And then she was like, yeah, come in on audition. And and I knew going in at that time, you know, web series, nobody was getting any money from web series. So so that was a given. And went in, did the audition at her house. and then. She emailed me like a couple hours later, like, you got the job and you got the unpaid gig, you know, (laughs) and then I was like, great, cool. And then I, you know, we we were shooting it like over the weekends and I was kind of like, it was very guerrilla style and there wasn't a lot of cast or crew. And I was just like, what did I get myself into? And but then, of course, it blew up and and you never know what what job or experience is going to take you to the next one? And um, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would have turned down that role because they'd be like, oh, well, I'm not getting paid. And, you know, I need my weekends. And yeah, I just said yes. So it's also interesting that you bring up kind of the appearance thing there about she wanted someone that looked mixed and you just kind of went for it and sent in your headshot. So the traditional narrative around South Asian actors is that being a minority is a disadvantage, right? So in Aziz's Master of None, I haven't seen it myself, but I've been told about a scene where there are two Indian actors that apply for the same role. And then the director tells them, like, we can't take both of you because then because this is not a brown show, quote unquote, brown show. So usually that we're told that we're 
too brown to be on TV, but I know earlier this year you auditioned for an American sitcom and you had kind of the opposite experience. Can you kind of talk about that? I have always kind of been, I've always been proud of being Indian and proud of my ethnicity and my background. And yet they'll send me in for Latinx shows and projects or Middle Eastern or even South American or Asian, like Filipina. I get that a lot. Brazilian. And I'm just like, okay, I mean, I'll go in. But if I book the job, I want them to write it for being Indian, which is actually exactly what Issa did. So so she, you know, was looking for a particular type. But then once she cast me and knew what ethnicity I was, she wrote to that. And, and there's like a fun rap that she wrote where our best friendship is described as curry fried chicken, <laughs> which is just really cute and fun. And and so I love that. I love that she t- took into account like who I was and and really played with that, but not in an offensive way at all. And so throughout the years when I've gone in for really specific Indian roles, Hollywood has a has a template in mind for that. And generally that template looks like Mindy Kaling. So they're looking for, you know, the younger Mindy Kaling and and I don't look like that. So so they're like, "Oh, she's, you know, to the to the exact event that you're talking about, I was called in for a very very successful famous sitcom that your listeners can guess what it was <laughs> going in for the role of fiance of one of the major characters. And it was me and four other four other girls that I that I knew. I love them. I knew all of them. Like we're all friends in this industry, you know? Like four other Indian girls. Yes, four other Indian yeah. girls. Yeah. And then we we go in one at a time. They have a very strict strange audition process that no one else does in in Hollywood and and everybody kind of talks about it and went in I know I killed it they were laughing producers were laughing I left as soon as I left I got a phone call from my agent being like hey hey they they called they they really liked you they just want to know if you're 100% Indian and I just like paused and I, and then I and I said I like had to defend my Indianness. I was like, I'm 100% Indian. My parents are from Calcutta. I speak fluent Bengali. And then I didn't get the role. And and someone who sort of looks like Mindy Kaling got the role. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, as soon as I got that phone call, I knew it just wasn't going to happen. And that really pushed me to be like, oh, I got to make definition, please. I got to I got to do this because because I feel like I can play all these Indian roles and somehow I don't look the way that Hollywood thinks an Indian woman looks. So before we dive into definition, please, I guess I just have one last question on the industry generally, which is now we're starting to see a rise in South Asian actors and actresses in even in mainstream content, right? There's a Pakistani lead for Miss Marvel. Padma Lakshmi, I think, just got a cooking show. Do you think that the challenges for South Asian and minority actors have been improving over the last few years? Or are you still seeing a lot of the same trends that you once did? I think they're definitely improving. You mentioned 
just on the actor front. So, so the thing that needs to change and that is changing is the creator front, the writer front, who's behind the scenes. So, so even if there are white creators or non, non-minority creators making projects and you have the one or two Indian actors in a television show or a film, I don't believe that that's enough. I think what's happening is like, I'm getting into rooms to sell stuff and all of my projects are about brown people. So that's definitely progress. And I know amongst my friends, that's also happening. So I do believe the industry is hearing that we have to have content made for us, by us. And that, you know, kudos to the Black community because they really opened the doors in terms of that and and stuck to, and I saw it happen kind of firsthand. You know, I saw when Awkward Black Girl was happening, you know, Issa was coming up alongside Justin Simeon, alongside Lena Waith, alongside Ava DuVernay, alongside Barry Jenkins. And then they were all supportive of each other and each other's projects. And, and so that was happening. I was like, oh, okay, we need to make that happen in the Indian community. We need to follow in the footsteps of the Black filmmaking community because they really, they really made that work. That's awesome. I, I do see a lot of that collaboration starting to happen between like South Asian influencers and creators. The fact that you and I are talking right now, I think is a testament to the fact that this is happening. But let, let's dive into definition, please. So I know that you drew, you drew inspiration for that from your own life, <laughs> from the fourth grade. So can you tell us a bit about definition, please, and what it is and your role in that film? Yeah, I like you said, I, I am, it's back in fourth grade. I won my class spelling bee at Holy Cross Elementary. And then I went on to regionals and I lost in the first round on the word radish. I spelled it with two D's instead of one. It's pretty devastating. But I remember Mrs. Lewis, my teacher, being very comforting, being just like, it's fine, it's fine. And and you know what? I never treated spelling bee seriously. I never trained for it. I, I feel like if I knew that you had to say those things like, ask for the definition, ask for the language of origin. Can you please repeat the word that those all help you think and spell the word in your brain. But I had no idea that you were supposed to do those things. Anyway, I'm trying to defend my law. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I'm like, come on, guys. Come on, guys. If, it, if it's any comfort, I got third place in the Ajax Pickering regionals <laughs> competition. And then, yeah, I lost on the first round once I got to the next round. Do you remember your word? Well, so the third place one, I lost on Ariel. I now know that I before E except after C. Devastating, clearly, since I still remember. And then the uh, other one was Rancid. Yeah, actually, now that, now that you mentioned the fact that I still remember these words years later, must there must be some trauma there. Everybody <laughs> always remembers these words because I remember I tweeted it once. I just tweeted it randomly and then it went viral and everybody was was writing their word that they lost on. And I was like, oh, this is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then so then fast forward to 2015, I was in a UCB Upright Citizens Brigade sketch writing class and we had to just write sketches every week. So one of my sketches was called Where Are They Now? Spelling Bee Winners. And if you look up the Spelling Bee Winners, they're all 
doing really great, amazing things. They're working at NASA. They're winning the World Poker Tour, just doing like smart people stuff. And I was like, okay, well, in my funny sketch, (laughs) one of these girls who won is now, you know, living at home in her mom's basement and she's playing video games and not doing anything at all. So I was like, oh, that's, I kept like thinking about that sketch even like months later. And I was like, oh, I feel like there's something there and there's something there. And then I went to the Sundance Screenwriting Lab in 2016. And that was really fun. And in 2017, I went to Sundance Film Festival for the first time and was called a Sundance influencer where I would like take over the their social medias and events and stuff, which is one of the greatest ways to experience that festival for the first time. My friend Justin Chan's film Gook was playing there. I was blown away and I kind of cornered him at his at his premiere, the post party. And I was like, how did you get this film made? And he's like, girl, I just raised the money from my friends and family. And we just went out and we shot it. And I was like, cool, that's what I'm going to do. So then after that, twenty so mid-2017, started writing the feature of Definition Please on that basic premise of a girl, a winner who doesn't live up to her potential, still living at home as an adult. And and I wanted to explore the reasons why. So I said, okay, it's going to be because of her relationships with her family, because she doesn't trust herself enough to kind of take the next step in her life. And that's what I explored in the script. and then kind of rewrote it throughout 2017, 2018, went back to Sundance in 2019, uh, this time with HBO and Justin's next film, Ms. Purple was playing there. And I was like, what am I doing with my time? Why haven't I made my movie yet? (laughs) He's made two films. (laughs) And so I was like, I'm going to make my film this summer. No idea where the money was coming from. I was like, June 2019, making the movie, started texting people in terms of cast. And then I got a really serendipitous email from uh, a show that I had sold to Time Warner. And it was caught in the merger of the studios. And they were like, hey, we're going to return the show and the copyright back to you, which is kind of a bummer because they're like, all right, we don't want it. But then they were like, here's a huge check along with your show. And I was like, what? (laughs) I had just made the decision to make my movie. And so I was the first investor into Definition, Please. And after that, you know, it was really off to the races. It It was easier to get other investors on board. There were a lot of brown investors who came in, young, brown, you know, people who work in tech and and our dentists and are in finance. And, and they were like, read the script and they said, never seen anything like this. Would love to see these characters on screen. And then we shot it in June of 2019, got the amazing cast and crew together. And then we went into post-production and finished it like early 2020, like terrible timing, actually. <laughs> so- We were about to premiere at the L.A. Asian Film Festival at the DGA in Hollywood. And then, of course, COVID happened and we had to strategize our way into and out of the festival circuit. So I guess there's a lot to explore, but I want to step back to just pitching the film for a moment. 
because a lot of the stuff that you're known for working on in the past is like HBO's Insecure, right? Where you have HBO behind you and like these big names, but now you're pitching an indie film to like Sonal Shah, who I loved in Scrubs, Ritesh Rajan, who was in Criminal Minds and The Jungle Book. Was it difficult to kind of reach out to these people that are maybe used to now working with bigger platforms and to convince them to take a risk on your film? Uh, like I said, we have this really supportive Indian American community in Hollywood and everyone that you just said are friends of mine. So, mm. I mean, Tesh tells the story a little bit differently. I think I just have some kind of rose colored glasses on the, <laughs> on the experience because I was thinking of like 10 million different things as well. And yeah. so I think with Tesh, I texted him and I said, Hey, I, I wrote this movie. I want you to play my brother. And he's like, great, send me the script. And then he read the script and he's like, let's meet up. So then I, I took him out to dinner at Rock Sugar, which is this like fusion place in West Hollywood, Century City area. And we were just talking and I was like, so are you going to do it? <laughs> I mean, we're filming in June. And he's like, yeah. So then that was that was kind of it. And that that was one of the main characters that I was pretty I, I wanted to make sure that I got that person on board before going out to the rest of the cast. And so Tesh was great. And he's he read the script and he was like, wow, I've never gotten to play a character like this before. And I think something that drew a lot of people into the script, even Anna Kaja, who plays Jaya, who's incredible. She's just like an incredible theater actress. And I don't know if you know, but she's literally played every single person's mom in <laughs> Hollywood. So on Quantico, she played Priyanka's mom. On The Good Place, she played Jamila's mom. On Tesh's other show, Stitcher, she had already played his mom. So she's kind of got this niche <laughs> but she said when she read the script she's like wow this this character has such a cool arc she's not like other moms that i've read she was really excited to step into those shoes so that it, i was just getting really great compliments kind of across the board and then and then parv came on board parvesh china and and he also gave me a really nice you know comment slash compliment was I learned so much about Bengali culture from your script. And I was like, oh, cool. Because I really love writing to the specific specificity of Bengal and, you know, what I grew up with. And and I know I also enjoy reading scripts, you know, like if it's like a Gujarati family specifically or a South Indian family specifically. Like I love those little differences that we all have. So that was cool. And then Sonal, you know, has been a good friend of mine. And I was just like, she's kind of perfect for this role. And then during shooting, there seemed to be like a chemistry between her and Tesh's character. And I was like, we're going to play into that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I did not envision that happening, but I really liked it. You know, kind of like mm -hmm. the, the cougary, like aunt going after the, I mean, obviously family friend going after the single hot guy. That was something that we just kind of discovered on set, which was, just fun and totally sonal. And I do believe she is such a great comedic addition to the movie. She kind of steals the show in every scene that she's in. And I, yeah. I love her for it. And I just, I'm just really glad that I got to make a film that was such a showcase for so many of my friends who don't normally get the chance to play these kind of meaty roles. 
she was hilarious and like you said i loved every scene that she was in and the the cougary thing was like kind of unexpected <laughs> but it just was amazing but one of the things you mentioned earlier is that this isn't just a film about like the spelling bee or the south asian experience where you're you're exploring mental health you're exploring family relationships on a much deeper level in the context of a south asian family which i found really interesting so on the last episode i spoke to a, a phd student that's studying representation in media specifically south asian representation in media and so i wanted to get your perspective as a practitioner on how you create representation in a film without it becoming a stereotype right like i loved the mango lussy line but it's easy for that kind of to feel general or non-specific so can you kind of speak to representation versus, versus stereotyping I think since I've been in Hollywood for so long and I've auditioned for so many roles that were stereotypes that I knew exactly what I wanted to put out there when I was putting out a movie or a TV show, because I knew I didn't want it to be like that. And so I'm inspired by so many indie films. So in terms of sibling stories that I love, I, I love Duplass Brothers movies. I love You Can Count On Me, Skeleton Twins, The Savages. These are all movies that I pulled from in terms of the tone of my film. And I was like, oh, why don't these indie films ever have like, I don't know, Indian people or Black people or, you know, or Asian people. And so I was like, I'm just going to make a Duplass style movie that has Indian people. And I knew I didn't want the conflict to be about being Indian or having an identity crisis. Because mm -hmm. honestly, Tesh and I talked about it and, and he also grew up in a very healthy, vibrant Indian community in New York and was also not you know, ashamed of his culture or anything. So he, he never had that like, I guess it's called like that American born confused Desi yeah. thing that happens to people. And so we were both like, that's not gonna be of conflict. And that was never going to be the conflict in my film. I was like, I want this to be, you know, a sort of a universal conflict, but something that I personally have experience with. And I knew that a lot of my friends also had experiences with, with mental health. And I think in Asian culture in general, there is a lot of pressure put on us, put on the kids of like, dude, you got to be taking 12 AP classes or what are you doing? You know, you better, you better like, you better get into Harvard or get into whatever six-year med program so that you're a doctor right away. And all that pressure leads to a lot of mental illness. And then at Case Western, every year there was someone committing suicide off the dorm. So, so I was just like, you know what? I'm going to like, the conflict is sort of connected to our culture, but I think everyone can really empathize with what's going on. So so that was my main thing. I didn't want the conflict to be about like, oh, am I Indian? Am I not Indian? I wanted it to be just about a real emotional thing. And, and yeah. I wanted the story, the main story is the relationship between the siblings and, and how everyone kind of re reacts to Sonny's mental illness and, and everyone reacts in a different way. And so I really loved kind of getting into that and and all of my actors were just really excited about being in a project that wasn't about being Indian but all the Indian stuff is just there and it's not explained like I'm not someone who writes in my script oh they're eating samosas and then it says 
fried potatoes and peas curried. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. If you don't know what a samosa is by now, then I don't know what rock you're living under. But you can also Google it. So, <laughs> or, or visit literally any restaurant. And I think the confidence I have in terms of not explaining Indian stuff in my scripts is that, you know, I came up with creators that refuse to explain their culture to people outside of their culture. And so that that is something that I that I truly believe in. I love that, especially because. I grew up in a smaller Indian community. I wasn't as deeply entrenched in it. But the thing that I always talk to people about is like, I never had that struggle when I was a kid. I didn't have the dual identity thing because yes, it it impacted my life for sure. But I just wasn't aware of it at the time. You know, it wasn't until later. So we see a lot of these memes and stuff. And I think it is fun to talk about it. But to make it like the central theme or issue in your life, I think can be a little bit misleading at times, which is why it's also fun to hear you talk about kind of the mental health struggles and like the more school related struggles and the, the things that the family relationships, the things that we've all kind of like worked on or faced. And then the Bengaliness of it almost comes in the details, right? Like we talked about the Ganesh statue on your desk earlier, like those types of things when they show up on screen, but they're not explained. I think that's where I felt most like I could relate to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll also tell you that there was a pilot season. I believe it was like the pilot season after the big sick came out which love the big sick excited for everything that it did for opening up doors for indian americans in hollywood but after that pilot season there were like six different scripts about arranged marriage and i was auditioning for all of them with my friends and i was like this is interesting because literally no one i know no one in the first generation is getting an arranged marriage and even like like my cousin, her parents are on the strict side and they're not even like getting arranged marriage for my cousin. So I'm just like, huh, it's just kind of like, oh, what's hot in Hollywood? What did really well? And they're like pulling from that. But then I still see that storyline come up. And, and whenever I'm being pitched movies for directing now, which I'm being pitched a lot. I'm like, well, I'll do it, but we got to change the script. We got to change that element. I'm not going to do anything with an arranged marriage. I'm just not. Even my cousins in India don't get arranged marriages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, maybe our parents did. Yeah, that was like, if you're making like a period piece um, set in the 60s or the 70s, then go for it. But I think we just need to, you know, get back to like what our personalities about, what are, what are people... What do people care about and find those conflicts in yeah. character? So something that I found really interesting about what you did with Definition Please is that you both played a lead role and you directed slash produced the film. So you were kind of taking on two two different aspects of the film, which is pretty interesting because like Quentin Tarantino like directs, but he's never like in the film. So I was curious why you chose to do that and how you would compare and contrast the two roles? Well, I always say I'm an actor first. So I came to, you know, I came to Hollywood to act. And then something that I saw happen with Issa is she wasn't seeing herself on screen. She was like, oh, I'm a black woman who's awkward and who doesn't know how to dance and isn't like sassy, which was the black woman roles at the time. 
And she was like, all right, I'm going to have to create my own role. So that's what she did. So I just really was inspired by her to follow in her footsteps because I wasn't seeing myself on screen. The first time, first and only time I had seen it was Bend It Like Beckham. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. That's And the fact that we haven't really had something since then is sad. But it pushed me to be like, oh, I, I'm going to I want to create the American version of Bend It Like Beckham. And so that's when I really got hardcore into writing. Like I said, I took screenwriting and playwriting at Case, but then I really started focusing on it and placing myself in those re- lead roles. And so in terms of compartmentalizing all the roles that I played, which was writer, director, producer, actor. Once I had the script in the shooting version of it, I put it away. So then the screenwriter part of me was finished with her job. And and we didn't improvise at all. I mean, Parv did. Parvesh Tina definitely. <laughs> but you know, he he will, he will. It was it was great actually. He was making us laugh every time. And then I could concentrate on the director part and the producing part and getting my actors together, getting the, the crew together. And and I specifically wrote my role to be the not emotionally taxing role. So I was really reacting off of what Sunny was giving me. And I because I knew that when I was on set, I would be doing like the director and the actor thing at the same time. So I was like, I'm not going to make it hard on myself. <laughs> and then and then Tesh, luckily, like the actors that I got on board they just came super prepared we we had like one or two rehearsals beforehand if we had any rehearsals at all and and Tesh was when he came over to my apartment I was just like oh we're just gonna read through this our scene and then he just was like full-on 110% like crying on my couch and in my head I was like Okay, I have to get up to his level in terms of acting. Now I know where to go. I was just like, oh, damn, like I got some work to do. So but he just like every single actor brought it, you know, which was really great. And it needed to happen because it's an indie film. We don't have time to do, honestly, more than three takes on everything. So so that's how I kind of compartmentalize all the different jobs. So you saw a lot of success with this film, like it went to the Colorado Dragon Boat Film Festival, Naples International Film Festival, and a bunch of others. I mentioned earlier that you've worked with HBO and some bigger uh, entities. Moving forward, do you see yourself doing more indie stuff, more brand name stuff? Do you have a preference towards either? I mean, I never want to do an independent film again. (laughs) (laughs) It was so much work. I... If I have to, I will, you know, Justin Chan keeps making movies. So I'm like, hmm, I guess I'm going to have to follow in his footsteps. But I am I'm in development on a TV show at a studio. And that's been really fun. And, and TV to me feels much more open in terms of stories told by minorities and people of color. So that's that's really exciting to me to be able to tell a story with a healthy budget and have mm-hmm. it look really, you know, flashy and awesome. But, you know, I wrote a couple scripts over the pandemic and a lot of them they're they're just a little higher budget than what we did with Definition Please. 
So I I think in the future I would I would just have to think about the indie film route in terms of if I really want to go there. But but I want to continue to, you know, make TV shows and make films and make sure that I'm consistently putting out good work. I've got one more question before I ask where people can find you. But it seems like a lot of your movie ideas start with questions of some sort. So definition, please, was like, what if a spelling bee winner washed up? Cowboys and Indian was what if one of the brides in Kill Bill were Indian? What are some of the other movie ideas that you have that didn't quite make the screen? I mean, I'm still pitching a bunch of those. So I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Well, I did have a web series that I made with um, Andrew Allen James, which is another actor from Awkward Black Girl. It's called Larry and Lucy. And it was the question that I asked in that was, what if Mark and Mindy were were people of color? <laughs> what if uh, Mark was a black alien and Mindy was a brown girl? So. I really like asking those questions. I think that that's something that any creator can can reach for in terms of trying to find inspiration. What if? I mean, always something that I did over the pandemic is watch a bunch of shows and films that I had never seen before that people talk about all the time, like like The Wire and Sopranos and Twin Peaks. And, and so those all opened up, you know, ideas for me. And just like let my imagination run wild, especially Twin Peaks, which is just like crazy and awesome and fun. And I was like, what if there's like a brown Twin Peaks? Like, why not? <laughs> you know, so so that's that's kind of where my questions come from. And they always stem from that. And then and then you're allowed to make stuff up beyond, you know, to like get the answers to that and put it into your script. This was super fun, Sujatha. So before we go, where can people find you, follow your work, hear about that new TV show? Yeah, yeah. So I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I know I said I deleted my Facebook, but it's a, it's a fan page. It's different. <laughs> um, it's at Sujata Day. And then also you can follow Definition Please on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On Twitter, it's D-F-N-P-L-E-A-S-E and Instagram and Definition Please. And you can follow all of those to find out what's going on with the film. We're, we're playing a couple more film festivals coming up and that's really exciting because it's finally live film festivals. We just had our first drive-in screening in Austin, which was really magical. Yeah, that's where you can find us. And I'll also encourage everyone to go on YouTube and look up Sajatha Day Dungeons and Dragons because that that clip is hilarious. Please, Girls Guts Glory, <laughs> Girls Guts Glory. I play Ichabod Fern Dweller. I'm a mountain dwarf, and that character is uh, very close to my heart. I kind of love him. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Suraj. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.